Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. You can go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses in Philippians chapter 2 as we sort of uh, springboard into our sermon for today, which is we believe in Jesus Christ. And I told you this is going to be foundational. This is going to be doctrinal, basic Christian stuff. So we've gone through, we believe the Bible, we believe in God, and now this week we believe in Jesus Christ. Who is, in your mind today, in your heart, as I answer, ask you this question, what is your answer? Who is Jesus Christ? Last week, I asked and I gave you this quote from A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And how you answer this question, who is Jesus, reveals the answer to the first question, what do you think about God? Because to know Jesus is to know God. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. To say we believe in Jesus Christ To take hold of the core tenets of the gospel, the good news that we're presented from Scripture that sets sinners free through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that is the foundation and the cornerstone of who we are as Christians. And without that, without that gospel, without that message, without those central tenets of our faith, we have no faith. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Now, what does he mean by have the Son? Well, he explains. If you have the Son, you have life. But if you have not believed in the Son of God, you do not have life. So to have the Son is to believe upon the Son. And to believe upon the Son, the Lord Jesus, is to have life. And apart from him, there is no life, no salvation, no hope apart from Jesus. So the question comes to you, do you have the Son? Do you have Jesus? Corollary to that, do you have life and salvation and hope? Ligonier Ministries, uh, we use a lot of their stuff for small groups and Bible studies, and you may be familiar with uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul. He's passed, but it was the ministry he started, a Bible teaching, Bible preaching platform for, for a lot of us. And every couple years, they do something called the State of Theology, and they partner up with Lifeway, our, our Southern Baptist publishing house, and, and they go and do a broad survey on some basic Christian doctrines. And the way they do it is they give a statement, and they ask the person hearing whether they agree or disagree. And uh, granted, polls can be skewed and people can misunderstand the question. And so these numbers cannot, they might be inaccurate, but it is not surprising to me. It might be surprising to you how some of these numbers turned out. 
one of the statements that was made to a group of purported evangelical Christians, and by that I mean Bible-believing, conservative, not liberal, not moderate, Jesus is the only way to heaven, the Bible is the word of God. Uh, one of them, a group of evangelicals, was asked this question or told this statement, Jesus was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. I made that statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was or is not God. And surprisingly, maybe to you, 43% of evangelicals agreed to that statement, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he is not God. Likewise, 56% of evangelicals, Bible-believing, conservative Christians, 56% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions. And, and just to clarify, the rest of the question went on to say, such as Islam, Judaism, and they might have listed a few others. There was no confusion as to what they were talking about. Can you imagine 43% of evangelicals, 56% of evangelicals, somewhere half of evangelicals believe that Jesus was not God and that God accepts the worship of all other religions. These are not unbelievers. These are self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. Now, it's interesting in the same study, when asked about certain social issues, abortion, same-sex marriage, etc., there was overwhelming agreement on behalf of evangelical Christians that lined up what we would say biblically in the life category, in the traditional marriage category. But when it came to these foundational points of Christian doctrine, we see lots of confusion. Or worse, we see heresy, false teaching, a false understanding of who Jesus is. And so the question would come afresh to us in light of that, do you have the Son? Do you have Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Or maybe this morning you're in that confused crowd. Or maybe worse, you have believed false teaching about who Jesus is. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know about this Jesus stuff, I mean, you're here, you're relatively okay with church, and you're relatively okay with God, but the Jesus thing, you've never surrendered your life and heart and faith to Jesus Christ. I want to be clear to you this morning about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he demands of you, unbeliever. For believers here today, we need to rehearse these doctrines to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done. Maybe this morning we need to tidy up our Christology a little bit. That's a fancy word that just means the doctrine of Christ. Maybe we need to tidy up in our minds who Jesus is and what he has done to stand in awe of the beauty and the glory of Jesus our Savior. Read with me very quickly, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Paul, talking about the Lord Jesus, says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this word that reveals to us who he is and what he's done. And as we listen to your word this morning, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would point us afresh to Christ, that you would convert unbelievers in this room here today, that you would remind us believers of who it is that we worship and serve and love this morning. Thank you for your word. Speak to us now, for we are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to unpack the doctrine of Christ in two main categories today. One, the person of Christ, and two, the work of Christ. Okay, very, very simple categories, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So let's begin with the person of Christ. When you talk about the person of someone, the person of Christ, we're asking who is Jesus? What is Jesus? In his identity, in his nature, who he is as the Son of God, this is where we have to begin. And we have to be clear about one thing at the very front of the list. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is eternal God. If I don't get anything else through to you today, at least we can settle that confusing note from that that state of theology uh, research they did where 43% said Jesus wasn't God. Everyone should go out of this room at least even if you don't believe it, at least saying that's what Christians believe. Jesus is eternal God. I believe we have a diagram, an old diagram of the Trinity, uh, the Trinity for you. This is very helpful. I would say that any illustration, any metaphor, any simile you've ever heard to describe the Trinity is probably false, okay? There's, there's just no good illustration. There's no good thing you can do with the egg or the Kool-Aid or whatever other strange illustrations you've seen that describe the Trinity in truth. This diagram I found to be the most helpful. You see the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is one eternal essence and being called God. And the three persons are unmixed. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. They are three distinct yet undivided persons within the one essence and being and divine nature that we call God. These are not three gods. These are not three parts of God. These are not three beings. These are not three modes. They're not three forms. They're not three manifestations. They are three co-eternal, co-equal, unmixed, unconfused, yet distinct persons. Now, if we go off the rails any, any way with that, we're, we're into heretical territory. We go off the rails of what the traditional Christian teaching has been for nearly 2,000 years. We must begin here before we understand anything else about who Jesus is. That before the man Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, Before the man Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, the Son, S-O-N, was co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. The Son was fully and absolutely divine. He was God. And if we don't start there, we've already slipped into heresy. I mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses last week. I'll mention them again this week. Jehovah's Witnesses are just a modern adaptation of an old false teaching called Arianism. In the early 300s, there was a pastor, bishop, 
uh, in Africa that began to teach Egypt, actually, that began to teach that there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, he was arguing that there was a time when the Son of God didn't exist and that he is a creation of God the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jehovah created Jesus. He's not eternal. He's certainly not God. It's just a modern adaptation of an old heresy. And so these things still exist today. We must be careful with our words. The ancient creeds were careful with their words, and for good reason. They were dealing with heretics like Arius and Docetus and other false teachings about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And so when churches, true Christian, traditional teaching churches got together to to put on the paper what it is Christians believe from Scripture, they were careful and precise with their words. And in the words of the Nicene Creed, they said this about Jesus, that he was begotten, not made. He proceeds eternally from God the Father, yet without beginning, without birth, and without creation. Begotten, not made. The Nicene Creed goes on to say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Nothing less than the eternal, ever-existing, uncreated I am. That's who Jesus is. In his nature, in his identity, First and foremost, he is eternal God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, you know this, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on to say that through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, Jesus, the Word, who was with God and who was God, In him is life, and that life was the light of men. We talked about this last week. No one else but the creator God could be the source of life and light. And so this word, who is life and light, must be at once equal with God, but it also says that he was with God. There's distinction, but there's also unity. Jesus is 100% true, glorious God. And every bit of that is crucial if we're going to get the next thing right. Secondary to him being eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect man. We just sang about this. Holy God and love became perfect man. Our statement says it this way. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ. So the Son who always was, never beginning, never created, the Son becomes a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was foretold in the Old Testament. You know Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We go through it every Christmas season, don't we? The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We as a church, we as Christians must confirm and confess and believe in our hearts the miracle of the virgin birth. Amen. We must confess the miracle of the virgin birth. And we say amen and we're strong about it and we're biblical about it, but maybe we don't understand why we must be strong about it. 
When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read to you verses 34 through 37. Mary says to the angel, after the angel says you're going to conceive and bear a son, call his name Jesus. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. For those moderate so-called Christians, liberal so-called Christians who reject the miracle of the virgin birth. And they try to paint this as some prophecy about a young maiden or a young girl, but not necessarily a virgin, therefore negating the miracle. They miss this whole conversation between Mary and the angel. Mary clearly knows what's wrong with this picture. And the angel clearly knows that this is going to have to be a miracle. And so if we're going to reject the virgin birth, we must reject the scriptures, which most of those who reject the virgin birth have already done. So we confess This is central. It's crucial to our faith, but maybe we still don't know why. Our statement of faith there says that Jesus perfectly revealed God, that he fulfilled the divine law. And to do this, as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, he had to be made like one of us in every respect. Nothing about Jesus was or is less than human. He had to be made like us, with one exception, without sin. We need a sinless, spotless, pure Savior. We need a perfect man. And that's why we need the virgin birth. And maybe you're still asking why. Central question here is how does sin come to us as humans? By our upbringing? Some, merely by our environment, our inclinations, yes. Ultimately, though, our sin comes to us because of the fall. Our sin comes to us through Adam and Eve. And it has spread since then to all humanity. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Death comes to all men because all men have sinned. And Romans chapter 5 verse 18 Later in that same chapter, one trespass led to condemnation for who? All men. Sin, the curse, death, condemnation come to all men because of their own sins, absolutely, but because also of that sinful nature inherited from our first father, Adam. And so there's the equation. If to be born into Adam is to inherit a sinful nature. Now, here's an important clarification. Sometimes we say a sin nature, that we have a sin nature. That makes it sound like we have like different sides of us, different natures. We don't have a good nature and a sin nature. And the sin nature is encroaching on the good nature. We're not made up of, we're human. We have one nature that is human. And that human nature is sinful. So instead of saying sin nature, we say we have a sinful human nature. Okay? Uh, So when Jesus comes into the world, if sin and the fall and the curse are inherited through Adam, then we have to ask, well, was Jesus then not truly human? 
If to be born into this world under Adam as a true human being, a man, is to be born into sin because of Adam, what do we do with Jesus when we say he's truly a man? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As soon as mankind had fallen into sin, God makes this promise. I will put enmity between your seed, the, the woman. He's talking to the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed. And he will bruise your heel. The serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But you shall bruise his head. From the very beginning, there's this promise, what we call the first gospel. There ingrained into the curse of the fall itself, where God says that the seed of a woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Again, we don't have to do family life education here this morning to understand that the seed does not indeed come from the woman. And so when God says this, it's either mistaken or he's pointing us to something else. And I think he's pointing us to something else. Hence the necessity of the virgin birth. The seed of the woman, apart from Adam, will bruise the serpent's head. Yes, fall, the fall, and sin comes to man from Adam. So God, in the virgin birth, gives us a real man, a real conception, a real gestation, real labor, Real birth, yet without the seed of Adam. No curse, no fall, no sin. Jesus given real human nature, circumventing sin altogether. Now you might be questioning at this point, well wait a minute. How is Jesus like us in every way if he doesn't have sin? How does he take on a sinful, how does he take on a human nature that is not sinful? How is that real human nature? We're all sinful. That's part of what it means to be human. And I would ask you this morning, is it? Is sin part of what it means to be human? Or is it a corruption of what it means to be human? God created man in the garden. He said, it is good. And then we messed it up. God's creation of human nature was untainted and undiluted by sin and so to be human is not necessarily to be sinful we born of adam are sinful humanity but jesus born truly human without sin is not a problem for god he takes on true human yet sinless nature this is what we call the doctrine, you can write this down, it's in the online notes, the doctrine of the incarnation, spelled exactly as it sounds, the incarnation. Now, if you know Latin or a little Spanish this morning, when we talk about carne, typically at a good Mexican restaurant, we're talking about some sort of steak, but it just literally means in Latin, meat or flesh. And so for something to become incarnate means that it has been enfleshed. Something that has no flesh is taking on flesh. And that's what we have with the birth of Jesus. The eternal Son of God being enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.1 again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. And this brings up some questions about the nature of Jesus at this point. Is he half God, half man? 
Was he temporarily not God when he was born in Bethlehem for 33 years and then he becomes God again? Is he some hybrid of the two, like a Hercules, a demigod? Is he two-sided? He has two sides to him, one side God, one side man. Theologians that are far smarter than you and I in the past have called this the mystery of the, you ready for this, hypostatic union. You can write that one down too. The hypostatic union, the identity and nature of who Jesus is in his person is one person, one man, yet with two natures, human and divine. Not half and half, not any other fraction, one man, two natures, truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. Not half and half, not three quarters and one quarter, not a gaudy man or a manny God, but the God, <laughs> the God man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul made that clear, didn't he? Though he was in the form of God. That doesn't mean he just looked like God. It means he was in union with God. And he goes on to say that, doesn't it? He did not count that equality with God something to be selfishly grasped and held on to. That's what he had before his incarnation. Equality with God. Oneness with God. And he does not lay that down when he becomes a man. He does not cease to be God. He doesn't lay aside his divine nature and take up a human nature. He becomes human still as 100% God. That's the miracle of the incarnation. It's not God stopping being God and becoming a man. It is God becoming a man. Verse 7, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says he emptied himself. And how did he empty himself? The next verse tells you, the next part tells you, by becoming a man. Now you say from last week, wait a minute. I remember, Pastor, last week you said God doesn't change. Didn't you say God was simple? And he's not composed of parts And you don't throw this on there and this on there and get God. He's simple, pure being. How do we have God then becoming a man? Well, in his becoming man, we do not have a change in the divine nature. Nothing changes about the godness. Only that the human nature is added. There's no change in who he is as God. There's no change in who God is as God. There's no shape-shifting or form-shifting in who God is in his person, his nature, and his being. Only that humanity is now added to it. It is enfleshed. The fullness of God, Paul says, in human form. So why is all of this so crucial? Why do we have to get right the person of Jesus Christ? Because we have to also talk about number two, The work of Christ. And if we do not understand who Jesus is or what Jesus is, we can't rightly understand what Jesus has done. And we have to begin with this central aspect of our faith, the atonement. We need an eternal God who becomes perfect man. We need the sinless God-man because we need a sacrifice. 
We need an exchange here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, In Adam, all die. So somehow we have to get out of Adam and into Christ. There has to be a change, a transformation, a conversion. If all is lost and all is death and all is condemnation and all is failure in Adam, we need an eternal God to become perfect man so that we can have a second chance by a second Adam. The last Adam. We need another Adam to bring victory where the first Adam failed. We need another Adam to bring life where the first Adam brought death. We need another Adam to bring salvation where the first Adam brought only condemnation. We need one who knows no sin to become sin for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's exactly what has happened in the person of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is something only a man could do, a true man. Only a man, a true human being, could die for the sins of man. But not just any man. We see there are limitations to us because of the curse, because of the fall. When the author of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament priesthood, he points out these problems in the priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, says the high priest goes into the second, the Holy of Holies, only once a year. And not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the intentional sins of the people. That priesthood reflects the limitations of every human being. We die because we're sinners. We're limited. These priests were limited. We could only ever hope to pay for our sins ourselves. That is why we need a perfect man. Look back at Hebrews chapter 7 verses 26 through 27. Look at how the author contrasts this with who Jesus is. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Look over at chapter 9 again, starting in verse 12. Contrasting to us who would need to atone for ourselves first, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is no sinful human being. This is no man who has a need to sacrifice for himself first. Sinful man can only die for his own sins. Only a sinless man could die for other sins. And only a sinless man who is also God could die for 
all sins. And that's why the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed or wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid on him. And it is with his stripes that we are healed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Romans 3.25 says that he is the propitiation. That is a big word that just means a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice. And listen, if we don't have a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice who died for our sins, paid our debt to the wrath of God the Father, if we don't have that, we don't have a gospel. And so whatever we're going to say about the work of Christ today, and whatever you think about the work of Christ, it must be centered on the cross. And we must say that he dealt with sin there. And we must say that it is finished on the cross. Not merely something made available to you. Not something merely made possible for you. Not something merely made even probable for you, but something made actual for you. A transaction was made. An exchange occurred. Jesus either paid it all for you or he didn't. But we sing with the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We know it doesn't end there, don't we? We go on and look at the victory of Christ. We know that's not the end of the story. He died. He was buried. We say what the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. But he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul says this is of first importance. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The sinless life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when he rose from the dead, this was no ghost, no spirit, no hallucination, no illusion, no fabrication. But a real dead human corpse came back to life and left the tomb empty. We don't have a reason to say, well, Jesus is risen in my heart. He might very well be risen in your heart, but he's also risen from an actual empty tomb. He is alive and well today, seated on the right hand of God the Father. And without this truth, there is no hope, there is no life, there is no salvation, there is no heaven, because we have no gospel. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, our faith is a lie. We can pack it up, we can close the Bible up, we can go on home, we can go join some civic organization that does nice things for people and meets and even sings some songs and says some good and moral lessons. But there's no church and there's no gospel without a live, risen Redeemer. In his victory, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his Father, where he reigns in glory 
and majesty and power. And get this, where he is interceding for you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that he is our advocate, our lawyer, our representative. I, I like this illustration because it reminds me very powerfully of what this is. We lived in Avon Park, Florida, central Florida, for a while, and there was a great Mexican restaurant and store there in town called Taqueria Merlot. And we would pull in there, and there was a parking place that was right next to this big warehouse. And on this big warehouse, someone had painted an advertisement for what I presume was a lawyer's office. It was in Spanish. And so the main word, and you who speak Spanish can correct me if I'm wrong, the main word on there was abogado. Am I right? Spanish speakers, abogado. That's a lawyer, right? Representative. Jesus is our advocate. Same root word, abogado, advocate. Our lawyer, our representative, who stands in our place, who pleads our case before the Father. Pleading what? His own blood. His wounds. When Satan makes a, a rightful accusation against you because you are a sinner. And so when Satan, the accuser, makes that accusation, there is one to stand in your place and plead for you, not your works, but his own. And you wrap your mind around the fact of Jesus praying for you. Think about uh, Jesus' interaction with Peter in Luke chapter 22. When Peter uh, is, is being tempted to keep Jesus from going to the cross, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he has this little interchange, this exchange with Peter. He says in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Oh, Peter, Satan has desired, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You know what Jesus says? But I have prayed for you. There's a lot of differences between Peter and Judas. This might be the main one. Jesus prayed for Peter. Romans 8.34, I'm sorry I gave you all 24 back there, so just imagine. Romans 8.34, it asks this question, who is there to condemn? Who, who brings a charge of condemnation against God's people? It is Jesus who rose for us, who died for us, and it is he who is now interceding for us. Who can bring a charge against that when the eternal God who became perfect man for you is your lawyer? Who can make an argument against him? Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor and theologian, said, if I could hear Christ praying in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. And because Jesus bled for you, and because Jesus rose for you, and ascended for you, and sent the Holy Spirit to you, and he's praying for you now, because of those things, you can know that you have victory in him. Not just motivation. Not just inspiration for the day. Not just a little booster to help you do then the rest. But real, substantial, eternal, sin-destroying, Satan-silencing victory in Jesus. Because of who he is. And because of what he's done for you. This is a victory that in God's time and in God's way will send his son again.
our statement says he will return to judge the world. I wonder if that's a comfort for you, that Jesus is coming to judge. Do you see that as glorious and beautiful and awe-inspiring, or is it dreadful to you this morning? In the times leading up to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church would hire um, stage actors to go to various towns and do what they would call uh, basically judgment plays, judgment dramas, in which it was portrayed the return of Jesus, the, the judging of the world, and people were sent to hell and prodded with pitchforks and fire and things. And it was meant to inspire fear on behalf of the people so that they would then come to Jesus? No. So they'd put a coin in the coffer and get some years off of purgatory. So when the medieval Christians thought about the day of judgment, there was no hope, there was no glory, there was no beauty, there was only dread and uncertainty. Am I good enough? Will I make it? How long will I have to be in purgatory before I'm in heaven? Will I even get to heaven? You can understand then that when the Reformation comes and recovers the gospel of the finished work of Christ, the eternal God who becomes perfect man to make atonement for sins and to give us victory, suddenly there's hope. There's life. And suddenly the return of Christ is not some dreadful thing of uncertainty and doom and gloom, but for Christians it's beautiful and glorious. As one of the catechisms of the Reformation says, the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 52 Here's the answer. What comfort is there to you that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead? And the answer is this. In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into eternal condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. And if you know Jesus today, that is what the return of Christ means for you. And I ask you today, do you know that certainty? Do you know that hope? Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, life everlasting. Do you know God through his son, Jesus Christ? And if not, today can be that day. Lastly, we have the command of Jesus. This eternal God who was perfect man to atone for our sins and give us victory. There's only one thing he asks of you. And that's everything. He says it this way in Luke 9.23. If any man desires to follow me, let him first deny himself daily. Take up his cross daily. And then he may come after me. What does it take to come to Jesus this morning? Only to die. To die to yourself. To die to your sin. To die that you might live. But here's the joy in that. What was on the other side of the cross for Jesus? Life. Resurrection. Glory. Heaven. 
Paul says, listen, if you have died with him, then you will also be raised with him. So take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow Jesus. More good news this morning. Jesus does not call us to do this alone. Jesus promises the presence of his Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us the family of God, the body of Christ. He gives us ordinances, sacraments that unite us with him through faith. And in baptism, we see visually confirmed the promise that all who come to faith in Christ have their sins washed away, not by the waters of baptism, but by the blood of Jesus signified in the waters of baptism. And today as we come to this table, we don't re-sacrifice Jesus. We don't have to literally have the physical body and blood of Jesus here, but he is here spiritually by his Holy Spirit who takes these simple elements, who takes this simple time together and transports, as it were, all of us up into the presence of Jesus who then becomes our host and who says to you, weary Christian pilgrim, come, eat, drink, remember, and find rest. This is a proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But Paul says it's also a proclamation of what is to come. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.